And so at some point in time, you got to step up and leave. But don't be afraid to do it because while it's uncomfortable, it's the most human thing you can do. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Walt Reykjavich was the CEO of Prologis, the world's largest owner of industrial warehouses and a critical partner to companies distributing products throughout the global supply chain. The company was near bankruptcy when Walt took it over at the height of the Great Recession. And while leading Prologis back to prominence, he learned and now teaches leaders to learn to lean into timeless values of principles, but with a fresh perspective on the new realities of our leadership climates. And they unfortunately um, cause us to act in ways that are more inwardly focused. They're, they're about us and they're not about other people. And other people see those insecurities. And so one of the things I did is I, I immediately hired a coach for the management team because I believe that we needed people from the outside looking in, telling us, you know, what we were prideful of and what we were fearful of and, and helping us to deal with those issues um, as, as, as managers. But I'd like to spend more time talking about um, something different. And that is that I, I began to understand the value of transparency. Um, and, and when I talk about transparency, I'm not talking about the word clarity, which is what people mostly associate transparency with. You know, they say, well, this leader is transparent. So he or she is clear about their directives. And don't get me wrong, I think that goes part of the way. But when I'm talking about transparency, I'm talking about leaders that actually open up a window into their soul, where all the people that work for them actually see what's going on, what, what makes them tick, because they're willing to open up themselves and show people the window into their soul. And when people look in your soul, they need to see a set of values and virtues that you believe in and that you lead by, non-negotiables, sort of how, how you're gonna treat them, how you believe um, you're going to treat the company. And, 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 and when they look at those values and virtues, they can't be about the leader. They gotta be about something else. So it's really interesting. Um, I was on the job for about a month, and frankly, I was kind of searching. I was doing my own soul, 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 excuse me, soul searching at the time because, you know, you're just in the middle of the soup. And I was asking myself a lot of questions. You know, how do I build trust? And I had um, another mentor. I, I spent a, a decent amount of time with a guy by the name of John Mack, who was the CEO of Morgan Stanley, and. Um, when I say a decent amount of time, I'm talking about a few phone calls, but I mean, we, we spent some time talking about, remember in 2008, what was happening to Morgan Stanley? Um, you know, the banks were being crammed together. The Fed and the Treasury Secretary is talking about cramming JP Morgan together with Morgan Stanley. And, you know, Goldman Sachs was going bankrupt. Morgan Stanley was going bankrupt. It was really a nightmare, right? 
And so I remember talking to John one day and, and, and we were a big client of his, so he was willing to spend some time with me. And so I said, John, I just want to know how you're managing your people. And um, he, he said, you know, Walt, interesting you'd ask me that. He said, I manage my people on the basis of the three H's. <laughs> I said, what in the heck is that, right? And he said, um, I think the best leaders, Walt, are the leaders that are humble, they're honest. And in this day and age, banker needs to have a sense of humor. And I, I kind of laughed and I said, well, you're, you're, you're right. And the more, you know, I went home is one of these things where, you know, you, you, you only remember one thing in the conversation, right? Went home, I was thinking about it. And you know, I realized, I, you know, I, I love those word, the word humility. I love the word honesty. I couldn't figure out the word humor because I wasn't exactly the most humorous person in the world. But I really think what he meant was human, to be human, which humor sort of falls underneath them. In other words, if, if you know, your people need to be able to relate to you, right? And if that means cracking a joke or whatever it is, I, that's fine. But at the end of the day, it's about relatability. It's about humanity. It's about leading with a heart, right? And so I, I, I began to think about what those words really mean and dissected them and asked myself, I'd go to work every day asking myself, am I, am I being too aggressive or am I being, you know, am I, am I being humble enough around people? You know, am I being brutally honest about, around people? Which by the way, we all think we are, but you'd be surprised how many times you sweep the truth under the rug or you don't exactly tell a full story because you don't want people to hear certain things or you don't want yourself to look bad. I mean, I've seen that happen. I saw it happen to myself, you know, the, the white lies. And, 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 and am I treating people in a human way? And um, I think those things sound really basic, but man, they're tough in practice, you know? And uh, I think you've gotta be intentional about them. And so I began, began to become intentional about my three H's, which were humility, honesty, and leading in a human heartfelt way um, in the organization. And the more I focused on those three things, I know they sound crazy and they, they might sound you know, soft, but the fact of the matter is that they made a difference in the way that I went about leading the, the company. And I truly believe that they made a difference in building trust in the organization because I took the focus off of myself and I tried to put it on other people. And I really believe over time, you know, people ask me all the time, well, how did, you know, how did you turn around? Well, Wall Street will talk about, Wall Street talks about all the great financial moves that we made. And I'd be happy to take you through how we sold $10 billion of assets and paid down debt and renegotiated our covenants. And we did all these things, right? I used to be the CFO of the company. I can talk you your head off about all the great financial moves we made. But you know what? The truth of the matter is we turned the company around because we made a difference in people's lives and we built trust because I didn't turn the company around, our people turned the company around. And if you don't get them to start working hard for you um, and working hard for something bigger that they, that they feel like they represent, you're never gonna get there. Yeah, I love it. Well, I wanna get the ProLogic story to relate more to the, to the club uh, world. I know you're a member of Gray Oaks in, in Naples and a member of Cherry Hills in, in Denver. Um, and I've kind of shared with you that I've been working with the, the Club Management Association, the Club Management Association of America for 15 years. 
and my assessment of this incredible organization, and, 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 and not just the Florida Club Mountain Association, but all of the clubs, is that there's really two types of, of leadership is the, is the old guard, where this, the, the general manager, the chief operating officer knows all the answers, com command and control, not vulnerable, uh, not, no, no transparency. And then the, the new guard that's really trying to bring in transparency and vulnerability and change, be innovative and change clubs. And Florida is, is really leading the way, but there's still a lot of old school leaders. And so if there's any old school leaders on the call, um, can you share a story about when you were transparent or when you were vulnerable with yep. your staff or how that really helped change the culture? My goal is to inspire a lot of people on the call today to lead in a very different way, to not to be afraid to be transparent and vulnerable uh, to their people. So um, I, I guess I have a couple of things to say, um, and I do have a story. But first, I want to just say this. When I speak of humility, you know, you, you, you look at the word humility in Webster's Dictionary, and you've probably heard me say this before, Tommy, but you see all kinds of words like weak, and you see unassertive, and you see submissive. And you say, well, that's not the kind of leader I want to be. You know, I'm not going to get any results being that. And I would agree with you. But I think, I think real humility um, is defined differently. I think it takes amazing amount of courage, self-confidence. And um, it's not about being weak, but it is about accepting the fact that you have weaknesses. And you're be willing to be vulnerable about those weaknesses with people. You know, it's not about being unassertive, but it is about taking into account other people's views before you make a decision. You know, and it's not about being submissive, but it is about putting others first and serving them and thinking about, you know, how you serve them. And the story that I like to tell is something that happened to me. I was on the job for about a month and um, we, were, we were working dog years. I mean, it was probably about one o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there with my finance team and we're trying to stave off bankruptcy. We're trying to just survive. And one of my finance people looked at me and I was tired, it was late, you know, looked at me and said, well, I, I think I have some bad news for you. And I said, what's that? He said, you know, none of us have wanted to use the, the B word, but the fact of the matter is that um, we're going to blow our bond covenants on seven to $10 billion in bonds. Um, and I said, when, when's that gonna happen? He said, by the next quarter, when we don't hit our earnings. And he said, you know, um, I, I said, well, what, what do you, you think is gonna happen? And he said, well, <laughs> there's no way around it. We're gonna have to declare bankruptcy. And I just, you know, kind of all the years I was at the company flashed through my eyes. And I mean, I started really weak. I said, you, you guys mind if I just leave? And I just gotta catch my breath. And they said, no, no, that's fine. I gotta get some water. And so I walked down the hall and I was turning the corner, just walking and I, I'm feeling really faint. And now I'm feeling, oh my God, I'm gonna faint. And I see this chair in the distance, okay? And um, I tried to get to the chair and I didn't get there in time. And when I fell, um, I hit the, my head on the corner of the desk and split my head open. And I'm laying down on the floor for what turned out to be about 10 minutes, head bleeding, blood on the carpet. 
And I wake up and honest, honestly, Tommy, I had no idea where I was for about 30 seconds. No idea. I mean, I'm laying on this carpet. I'm like, where am I? And then all of a sudden it hit me. Oh my God, I'm in my office. I'm in some other guy's office, but on the floor, horrible headache. And I feel it. there's blood. You know, oh my gosh. And there's still 10 people in the room waiting for me. So I quickly go to the bathroom, did my best to stop the bleeding, walk back in the room. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about this bankruptcy thing, guys. My CFO looks at me and he said, no, Walt, let's talk about that huge lump that's bleeding on the top of your head. And you know what? I felt I was just busted. And I looked around at everybody in the room and I said, you know what, guys, I was hired as the CEO to have all the answers. And you know what? I don't have one answer. I have no idea what to do. And frankly, I'm concerned. No, let's call it something different. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I mean, I really am because I don't have all the answers. Maybe it was the first time in my career that I didn't, whatever, but I didn't. And I looked around everybody in the room and I said, guys, you're going to have to help me here. You're going to have to come up with the answers, right? And I thought I was being humble. I thought I was being vulnerable, maybe too much so, but it was absolutely amazing. Everybody looks at me and they said, you know what, Walt, give us a week. Let us think about it. It was the first time they felt empowered, truly empowered, that there was nobody else above them that they they had the answer. They had the answers and they had to come up with it. And you know what? By hook or crook through the sale of our China operation and the sale of half half of our Japan operation. And and you know, we we did some accounting gymnastics, which were all was all legal, but the fact of the matter is we booked gains in in the first quarter that um uh, that we had to accelerate, but by hook or crook, we got through it. And it was because of the answers that other people felt empowered to come up with, not me. And I truly believe that there is power in vulnerability. I'm not telling everybody on this call that they need to be vulnerable at all times, because you can't. I mean, people expect you to lead. And so at some point in time, you got to step up and lead, but don't be afraid to do it because while it's uncomfortable, it's the most human thing you can do. And it's the ultimate expression of honesty. And I think sometimes by letting your guard down, you invite others to do so. And you wanna create real communication in your operation, that's how you do it. Put yourself on an equal playing field as everybody else. And let people understand that you're going through some tough times too. You don't have all the answers and you need them. And I think it's, it, it happens. And that's how you build trust in your organization. And that's my story on vulnerability. Yeah, I love that. Well, and as those people on the call that know that I, I wrote about you, Walt, and the turnaround in the heart-led leader. And I think it was such a popular story in the book because you know we're talking about heart-led leadership, leading with vulnerability, leading with transparency, leading with humility. And those qualities of humility, transparency, vulnerability, were often seen as weak for many years. And when I interviewed a lot of your staff for the book, they feared the old CEO. They, they, they didn't know the old CEO. The old CEO never said, I don't know the answer. I, I'm, you know, they, he hid in this corner office and only cared about his, his money and his stock options and himself and to bring in a new leader that was totally transparent. 
and it was all about humility and, and, and um, vulnerability and transparency and, and love. Um, I'm so glad that the, the folks um, in the Florida Club and Associate gets to hear the story because it's, it's a true shift of, of leadership. Um, before we move to the next question, I'd love to have one last answer about this Prologis story. I remember when you told me a story about when you went to your investors on that call. Remember that call that yeah. a couple thousand people and you were and you, you basically said all the investors don't trust me, just watch me. Like, can you tell that story? Yeah. So it was the second day that I was on the job and I came back. Our stock is down 96%. Um, you cannot believe. I must have gotten a thousand emails and texts from everything from sell-side analysts to investors to rating agencies to the mayor of Denver to my board. You know, I mean, it was just crazy, right? And um, my CFO and I decided that we needed to get to Wall Street as quickly as possible and stand there in front of our investors and try to talk about, um, you know, how we were going to get through this. And um, so we did, we hastily called this meeting and we had over a thousand investors that showed up at the Waldorf. Believe it or not, they were in five or six different rooms, which the Waldorf had to work on, you know, getting communication in all these rooms. And you know what? We started the meeting off. I, I said to my CFO, we need to start the meeting off and talk about all the things that we did wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I wasn't there for part of the time, okay? But I was there when we minus out the 10 months prior to that, I was there every day. And so I was as much, I felt I was as much responsible for the things that happened in the company than anybody else. And I got up and, and we started the meeting and we talked about what we did wrong and why, you know, why we thought they were the right things to do. Some of it was covering the things that my, the CEO had done, but nonetheless, we were, you know, as open and honest as we could be. And then we told them that we needed to rebuild their trust, that rebuilding their trust was the most important thing to us. But we told them that they shouldn't trust us, but they should watch us. Some people thought it was an arrogant comment, but most people understood that what we really meant was we needed to earn their trust. And we were going to earn their trust. And until we earned their trust, they needed to watch us. And then when we earned their trust, they could trust us and reinvest in us. And I, I felt like it was a powerful thing to say. It was written by a number of sell-side analysts after that. And I think it turned the tide in terms of how the investment community actually thought about us. And they began to trust us. That very day, I think they began to trust us. Yeah, I love that. My father always told me, well, when I was younger, um, never trust anyone that starts off with a sentence that says, trust me. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> that trust, trust is never asked for. Um, you have to earn it. You have to earn it. I love the fact that you earn it. You know, um, Pelagius is now, what, a 20 plus billion dollar company. Tell us about the results of the turnaround and where it is today. Well, I'd say it's a hundred, it's a hundred and twenty billion dollar company. It's one of the largest companies in the world. Um, that, that well, they own 120 billion dollars of assets. I think their market cap is probably 50 or 60 billion, something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, they're they're Prologis is a great company. I mean, their stock trades at over hundred dollars a share now, um, or roughly hundred dollars a share. Um, I, I I left the company in 2012. 
Um, we merged the company together with a smaller competitor, but I wanted to, I wanted to leave the company. Um, this is about four and a half years after the turnaround. I wanted to leave the company. I really felt like um, my heart was um, in a different place at the time. And, and I felt like I had gone back and do done the job that everybody wanted me to do. Um, my board was encouraging me to stay, but I, I just didn't think it was the right thing. And so we felt the right thing for the company was to merge it together. And the CEO of the smaller company wanted to run the company. And so he, he's running the combined company today and has done a remarkable job with the company overall. Um, so, you know, Prologis is the largest, one of the largest real estate companies in the world, probably the second or third largest real estate company in the world today with $120 billion of assets, um, rock solid financially and um, continue to have the greatest people in the world. We're going to move on to other things, but I wanted just to you know, kind of wrap up the Prologis story is that I love that you fact that you talked about, it's not you that changed Prologis, it's, it's the thousands of employees that, that, that work for you and work with you that turned it around. But the reality is it really was a lot of your leadership style that built the culture. And a lot of the people on the call are in leadership positions. They're general managers or assistant general managers. They, they, they have a chance of changing the culture of their club. And uh, even your club um, at Gray Oaks is a new, a new leader that, that's, that's coming in that was a challenging culture that's coming in to change the culture. And so I'm glad that the, the leaders on this call got to hear uh, of an old school leader uh, being replaced by a new school leader and how the culture totally changed and the results happened because of that. So thanks for sharing that, Walt. Um, we're gonna move on to the next question. Walt is a, um, a graduate of Penn State University. Uh, he went on and got his master's at, at, at Harvard, but his real passion is the Nifty Lions and he's on the board of trustees. And I think you still currently are, but ten, that 10 years ago was the whole you know, Joe Paterno, uh, Sandusky, you know, controversy and that whole thing that really shocked the world. Yeah. And I learned a lot from you, Walt, about how when you're on the board and how you handled that, how the board handled it and just the whole controversy of what happened. And I would love just to hear your thoughts on what we can learn from the whole thing, Paterno, Sandusky, and just give us kind of a recap on it and, and what you learned from, from that experience being on the board during that, that, that tumultuous time. So... Let me just kind of paint the picture for everybody. Um, Sandusky, uh, you know, he served as an assistant coach under Paterno for 30 years. You know, he, he was two times, two times assistant coach of the year. Um, you know, he was a Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Famer, you know, uh, married 55 years to the same woman, adopted six children, um, you know, member of the United Methodist Church, active member, and started the Second Mile, which was a nonprofit you know, serving Pennsylvania's underprivileged youth. This is not the guy that you would think would molest kids. Just not. Um, and prior to it happening, um, prior, excuse me, prior to his retirement in 98-ish, um, there was a parent of one of the victims who came forth and talked about, kind of complained about how close he was getting to his her son. And um, Penn State actually handled that. It's funny, it gets very little um, uh, press, but they actually handled it the right way that time. And they took it to the, the appropriate people and the case was dismissed. Um, they said, no, he didn't do it. He didn't molest this, 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 this child. And, you know, you have to understand, Jerry was a very passionate, sort of affectionate sort of guy, you know, getting, you know, it, it wasn't unusual for him to be hugging people and that type of thing. And so 
when the case was dismissed, I think a lot of the people in Penn State thought, yeah, that's just Jerry being Jerry. That's his demeanor, you know? And then four years later, um, the shower incident happened, which most people are familiar with, where a coach um, had actually walked into a shower at nine o'clock in the evening on a Friday night and, and had heard Jerry and another boy in the shower and didn't see anything sexual, but presumed that there had to be something sexually going on and went to Paterno, talked to Paterno about it. Paterno talked to the AD um, and the, the CFO of, of Penn State. They ultimately, you know, um, interviewed Jerry, interviewed um, uh, Paterno, interviewed the coach, and they made the decision, wrongfully so, to do nothing. And sadly, um, did nothing. And, you know, 10 years after that, the grand jury, or seven years after that, the grand jury, more and more incidences come up and the grand jury began investigating it. And now 10 years later, Penn State is $300 million in the hole. And um, unfortunately, when I say in the hole, we, we coughed up over $300 million to 30 victims and, and um, lawyers and you know legal fees and the like, right? So you might say unconscionable, right? Just unconscionable. Why, why wouldn't somebody report this? You know, and how can how can people allow this to happen? And um, surely I would have handled it differently, right? Um, but I can't tell you how often there's a problem in our organizations um, right before our eyes, and we don't see it. Um, maybe we don't want to see it. Maybe um, we just don't see it. I don't know. But I can tell you that the AD and the, the CFO were both really honorable men that felt that they were making the right decision that truly felt, I drew, truly believe, felt that nothing happened when in fact it did. Um, and as a board, we had to learn at Penn State what, transparent, what true transparency meant when the press is breathing all over you. And I think through transparency, we, uh, you know, we, 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 we survived, if you will, over time, and then ultimately today are thriving. But I wanna get back to this, this whole notion because of, 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 of things that you, you need to see that you don't always see that are right in front of you. And you say you, you would have handled it differently. Because I think that's important from a management perspective. At, at, and I'll get back to seeing Dusky in a minute, but at Prologis, I had a senior person, really senior person, who was a cultural viper, chewed out his subordinates, bullied people, used four letter words in a vulgar way, was really unapproachable in some respects by many of his subordinates. And we let it go. I let it go for far too long. You know, we knew we had to deal with it, but we didn't want to lose his expertise. You know, how many people have been in that position? A lot of us. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just like, you don't exactly know how to deal with it. Right. And so you don't. And part of that is, I think maybe a little bit of what happened at Penn State. I don't know. But you know, we began at Prologis, we began looking like hypocrites to all of our employees. You know, on one hand, we're talking about culture and the importance of culture. And on the other hand, we're sweeping cultural vipers underneath the carpet, you know? And I began to think 
that I needed to handle it differently. Um, and remember, I, I started talking to you about hiring a coach. And I remember, I recall hiring this coach and the coach came in and coached the top 10 people in the organization. And um, this, this bully, if you will, um, person who I um, have come to, is, turns out to be one of my best friends now, but um, threw down his coaching papers in my office and said, I quit. And I said, why do you quit? And he said, because nobody in this organization appreciates how hard I work. Look at, look at all, the, we did 360 degree evaluations and all these people at work were telling, you know, talk about how he was a cultural viper and blah, blah, blah. And he just couldn't handle the truth. And, but it was telling to him. And I said, you know, you can either walk out the door as a bully, um, as a coward, or you can deal with this and realize that your job is every day to come to work and make an influence on people. And he said, okay, let me think about it. He comes back the next day and he says, I'll do that. I'll make a difference in the lives of people. And he stood up in front, back to your vulnerability, stood up in front of every employee in our company because it was webcast. So all people in Europe were on United States and people in Asia were sleeping, but watched it the next day. And he admitted to them that he had been a bully and he wanted to change. And I'm telling you all of this because sometimes we sweep things under the rug as managers that we shouldn't. At Penn State, they did. And it led to an amazing outflow of money and brain damage over a 10-year period of time, reputationally, financially, and the like. And I did it at Prologis. I see it happening every day. And some of the lessons that I learned to your, to your question, Tommy, are one, don't assume that you've got everything under control because you never do. <laughs> you think you do, but you never do. And our job as managers and as leaders are really to ask questions and listen more so than tell. And I think if we do that, we find out a lot more um, than we know. Second, when you, got, when you have an issue, deal with it because everybody else around you is watching you. And they'll all think you're a hypocrite if you don't. And so you can't sweep it under the rug. Issues don't go away, they fester and they grow. And the third thing is that your reputation is actually shaped by the way you respond. Um, it's not how good a person you are, it's the way that you respond to the issues that are around you. And I, I think especially employees, your employees are your frontline people. And so if your club members are the most important people to you, um, realize that actually you can make a difference in your club by treating your employees with dignity and respect because your employees are the ones that are interacting with them day to day, right? And, and so, you know, I, I, those are just some lessons that have come out um, to, from the Penn State thing and from the way that, um, uh, I treated a, a certain senior manager in the organization. And I think hopefully those stories are somewhat relatable to people on the line. Thank you. For me, well, what I love about that Penn State story is Paterno is one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach that's lived with most wins, but his legacy was tarnished and forever tarnished. Absolutely. Pushing something under the, the rug. And even though he wasn't the molester, um, he was associated because he could have stopped it. And that's, that's tough leadership. And I'm glad that the, 
the, the club managers are hearing this because a lot of times we, we see things that need to be said and to change the cultures of clubs there needs to be more transparency. So I love that story. Uh, thank you, Walt. Um, I'm just gonna close with one last question, Walt. And um, as I've shared before our webinar, we were chatting, um, I've gotten to really work with a lot of the Florida clubs and I just love them. And I love a lot of these guys and, and ladies and um, a lot of them are married and with kids and families that I've gotten to know. And one of the things about this club business, it's a tough business. I mean, it's a seven days a week. It's, you gotta deal with the board. You gotta deal with members. You gotta deal with employees and, and pre-COVID, during COVID, it's just, they work a lot. And I worry about their marriages and their relationships with their children. And I often wonder, how do you sustain a great marriage and great children while you run these amazing clubs? And I've watched you, you know, not only turn around a S&P 500 company, um, but I've watched, I've met, I've met your, you know, your son and your daughter and, I, and I, I've met your wife many times and I, I see what you have. You, you have the trifecta. You have great business success, you have a great family and you have a great you know, relationship with your community and, and your church and you do all well. Um, and you know, I envy your marriage and your relationship with your kids. Um, so what kind of advice can you give a lot of these leaders and clubs that work 80, 90 hours a week that have incredibly stressful jobs? How do you do that well? And also maintain a great relationship with their children and their, and their marriages? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know that when I was traveling 300,000 miles a year, I don't know if I was a great dad or not. I mean, my kids will say, I think that I did a pretty good job, but I, I didn't feel like it at the time. But um, I, I realized that there was only, you know, there was only so many hours in a day. So the truth of the matter is that when I wasn't at work, I, I put my wife first and I prioritized my wife. And, and I actually prioritized my wife before my kids because I, I thought the most important thing that my kids could see was that we were a unit. Uh, we were a you know family unit and we were inseparable. Um, and so, you know, looking back on it, Tommy, I think maybe the best thing I did was just treated my wife um, with incredible dignity and put and put her first as much as I could. I mean, I had to put my job first and I and, and I had to prioritize that. But I lifted her up and we did all kinds of fun things together. Like, for example, every year we made sure that we took one week vacation, just the two of us. Even when our kids were one and three years old, we figured out a way to babysit them and just spend time together. I think the more time that you can spend together, the better off uh, you are. The other thing is for me, I'm a man of faith. And so from my perspective, having faith is, is critically important to um, living in this insane world. And it, it gives me a platform from which to realize that I can actually talk to somebody and actually believe that there will be a difference made. And so I spend a tremendous amount of time in prayer. I just do. And I'm not trying to convince anybody that that's the right thing to do, but it is the right thing for me because we all need to have something to hang our hat on. We all need to have something to go to because if it's just, if, it, if we think it's ourselves or if it's our friends or whatever, um, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna work because we're all weak. And, um, and we need somebody strong in our weaknesses. Yeah. And then the third thing is last but not least, I think to the extent that you can have an accountability group of, of, of friends that you can go to and at least share things um, with people that like this group that are going through other things, I think 
is critically important to helping you deal with the insaneness of what you're going through. So those are just some thoughts off the top of my head. Thanks, Juan. So I remember years ago, um, I met you playing golf in Cherry Hills. And um, um, I remember you told me that you wanted to write a book. And yeah. so I'd love to ask, you know, to share with, you know, the members, what are you doing now? And, you know, what's keeping you busy? Um, tell us about your new book and tell us about what Transfluence is and, um, and how are you using this message to help other organizations? So um, I spend um, about a third of my time on three corporate boards, um, all Fortune 500 companies. Um, I spend um, time on the Penn State board um, where I chair the audit committee. Um, and I, uh, I decided a couple of years ago, as you said, to write a book. And the book is called Transfluence. It stands for transformational influence. It stands for the most important thing you can do as a leader with all the priorities that you've got. The most important thing you can do is make a transformational influence in the lives of those that you lead. And I truly believe that that should be our objective as leaders. It's, 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 it's about the legacy we lead. Um, it's about you know um, changing other people's lives, making them better. That's why we lead. Um, and if we do that, actually, we're going to take care of the customer um, because you're going to make a lot of people happy. Um, that's what the book is about. It's about transformational influence. It's about building trust in the organization. And I would encourage anybody on this phone to pick uh, this, uh, this call to pick it up, read it, and um, hopefully it'll make a difference in the way that you lead other people. I also speak from time to time, as you know, and blog. Um, at waltrakowich.com. It's W-A-L-T-R-A-K-O-W-I-C-H.com and um, blog about leadership on a weekly basis. And, you know, that's part of my life now. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, I want to just share my heart with, with the Florida clubs. Um, you know, this, this thing that Beth and I came up with, this, not, you know, nine-month journey of this nine-session you know, a webinar series. A couple weeks ago, we had Lee Cockrell with Disney. And next week, we have Cheryl Blatchleiter, that former CEO of Popeyes, and all trying to kind of move people towards bringing heart-led leadership to their, to their clubs. And what I really was thankful and hopeful for this webinar is that I wanted the club managers and the club leaders to, to really see um, that you can be successful in business and transform organizations and still be humble and genuine and authentic and transparent and, and, and those, those qualities that I, we often talked about in the heart-led leader. And one of the things that I love about you, Walt, probably the most thing I love about you, other than just being a dear friend, um, is usually in life, unfortunately, the more success that we have, the more wealth that we accumulate, the more positional authority that we have, the, 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 you know, the more, the, there's a direct correlation of the more power and positional authority we have, the more arrogant we become. Mm. It's, it's just almost nature, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the more success, the more money, the more power, you, be, you start running a club, it's all about you. And then you, you get this arrogance. It's, it's just a direct correlation. And the, the real amazing leaders, you know, the real heart-led leaders is the more success, the more wealth, the more money, the more positional authority that you, that you have, the more humble you become. And you do that better than just about anyone I know on this planet well. And I really appreciate you sharing your heart uh, with the members. And um, I recommend getting the book, uh, Transfluence. Um, it was fantastic. And 
and really was told the whole story of the turnaround, but also you know, of humility and the power of it. Um, any closing words, Walt, that you want to share before we wrap up? No, except, well, the only thing I would say is that it has been a real pleasure to be on with, with this group. And I can relate because I, I, I spend five months out of the year down here in Florida now in Naples. And I relate, I relate to the things that you all go to or go through because, frankly, I see it. I see it in the membership. Um, I think you have an amazingly difficult job. Um, I mean, you really do. And, you know, that arrogance that you talk about, Tommy, and, and, and you know, Unfortunately, most of the people that are members of these clubs have quote unquote made it in life, but they haven't made it in their heart. And they, and they, they, they may make it very difficult for the people that are on this, this line. I just know that you're very much appreciated, uh, very, very much appreciated by guys like me. And I guess, I guess I would, the parting comment is that if you want to take care of your customers, take care of your employees. Um, I, I truly believe that um, if you do that, you'll actually find that the interactions that your customers have with those employees are the things that they remember the most. And um, so just, just keep that in mind. Love it. Well, I love you, Walt. I appreciate you sharing your heart with us today. Uh, the password uh, for today to get credit is uh, transform. And uh, thank you, Walt, for um, an amazing webinar uh, today. Our next webinar is gonna be April 20, 20th, Tuesday, two weeks from now with Cheryl Batchletter, that was the president CEO of Popeyes, who I also wrote about in The Heart Led Leader. And it's interesting that they're back to back, but Walt and Cheryl were the two leaders that I really wrote about that, that actually did this stuff in their organizations and transformed their organizations through, through Heart Led Leadership. And Cheryl wrote a book called Dare to Serve that we're gonna hear from her in a couple of weeks. Um, Beth, my partner in crime, thank you so much. And the board of Florida Clubman Association, I wish you a great couple of weeks and a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Walt, for, for, for tuning in today. Thanks, Take Tommy. Care. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, everybody.